Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover The Stand, Book 2, Chapters 50 to 52. Let's start the show. The story has made its way to Boulder, Colorado, where those that have dreamed of Mother Abigail have congregated. Stu and Glenn have a conversation about how this new community should be set up, and our main characters seem to be positioning themselves as the leaders. Larry meets Franny, and she gets a different perspective on Harold. But she shouldn't doubt herself, she knows him pretty well, and finds a clue that points to him having read her diary. The committee meets and starts discussing plans on dealing with the adversary, Randall Flagg. Mother Abigail has a vision and wanders west. As Stu, Ralph, and others search for her, Harold plans on taking decisive action. An old friend arrives in Boulder, a little worse for wear, but his appearance brings a smile to Glenn and Stu. Jay, there's a whole lot going on in these three chapters, which are all set in Boulder. Mm -hmm. After somewhat of a odd time jump, you know, King has really led us through almost day by day what's happened from Patient Zero through all these characters' lives for the most part. We have a pretty good sense of what's going on this summer. And then all of a sudden, it seems like a lot of the groups are in Colorado and have started finding apartments and houses and living and getting along with their lives. and. It was just sort of an odd time jump for me, but I'm glad we're finally here in Boulder because it seems like the story's moving towards something. Yeah, it, it's felt like we were moving towards this moment for a, a long time, perhaps even a little too long, as we hinted at in our last episode. Yeah. But we're finally here. All the characters that we've spent all this time getting to know and, and, and care about are getting to know each other. Right. And that's fun. And that's that's cool. But what they're doing is they're going through the growing pains of forming a new society. It's it, it's interesting, you know. Like they have a lot of opportunities to make things of their from their own imagination. They don't have to do things the way they've always been done. They don't have to follow the old rules. They can make new rules. Yeah, one of the first things that Glenn suggests is let's ratify the Constitution. Let's ratify the Bill of Rights. Yeah, let's just put America back on on track i mean it's a nice shortcut too yeah glenn seems to be saying that he has noticed that this new society that's gotten together is not really doing a whole lot of anything everyone's just sort of going their own way and he said as a way of sort of getting everyone back on the same page let's reintroduce the constitution let's reinstitute the pledge of allegiance and the bill of rights so that we have this common understanding of what we're starting from and then we will build our society based on that so that people have some familiarity with it. Mm -hmm. As we talked about weeks ago, all these characters, the ones we've met, we, ones we haven't met, have gone through some sort of post-traumatic stress over the past three months in the book time when the plague started and now there's only you know a few thousand of them left. He fi figures if we at least put this in place, people will get used to here are the norms that we should follow and be involved with. Now, at the same time, Glenn's saying this, he's also saying, well, We'll make sure that things go the way we want them to go. We could sort of direct people the way we want them to go, but at least we'll have that beginnings of a society there. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that only like 
the people having this conversation are the only ones having this conversation. Yeah. Wouldn't it be interesting if King cut to another group of Boulder citizens who are also saying, we have to, you know, get this this group of people together and on one page and let's yeah. ratify the constitution and and let's do what we can to get everybody on in this room right now yeah. on that that new elected body. And next thing you know, you've got a two-party system in one fell swoop. Right. Or you have someone who was visiting from some socialist country in Europe who just happened to be in America when things happened and he or she had dreams of Mother Abigail. And he's like, let's set up a socialist society where we all work together and all of our taxes go to good health care and social services. And then they're, they're like, well, wait, wait a minute there. You're getting a little uh, crazy with your talk here of socialism. Kidding aside about the socialist part, it's crossed my mind numerous times about how we're spanning the United States, but Canada and Mexico are never involved in this story. Mm. And your comment about the healthcare reminded me of, of Canada. It's like, we're in Boulder, Colorado, but people have come from Maine and, and other places. Texas, is this North America or is this just the United States? How is it that nobody from Canada migrated to see Mother Abigail? How is it that nobody from Mexico migrated to see Mother Abigail? I, I find that a little bit selective on King's part that, you know, it's just the, the United States. And he talked about how this is a story about America. Right. But it feels weird that these human artificial constructs that we call borders still seem to yeah. matter in this in this time of magic and good versus evil. Well, maybe there's another book out there that's called like The Stand, eh? And it's got <laughs> a group of people who are in Saskatchewan and they're facing off with a group of people in Vancouver and mm. there's a lot of hockey and poutine. And and hosers. A bunch of hosers. They're drinking milk out of bags. Saying sorry. Lots of Tim Hortons involved. Who knows? We just lost our entire Canadian audience. Sorry. I won't make the same joke about Mexico next then. We don't want to lose our Mexican audience either. It's interesting how King sets up the talk of this new society. He says at one point that Boulder itself was a clone society, a tabula so rasa that it could not sense its own novel beauty yeah and it's interesting because glenn specifically says he wants to somewhat make it like america mm -hmm. so that there there is that piece and to your point they have an opportunity here to do things new but they're choosing just really not to do it even though they do have a totally fresh start and what's interesting also is they they hint at the fact that boulder is relatively clear of dead people yep Almost as if right before things got really bad, everyone sort of skedaddled out of town. And I think we're supposed to take it that this is some sort of supernatural way of making sure that the people who ended up here didn't have the worry of thousands of dead bodies and disease and who knows what else would be there because of that. So it literally is like there are bodies that they need to clear out. But for the most part, it's just an empty city waiting to be inhabited. Yeah. I think that goes back to my earlier comment, like, is it the blank slate or are they, you know, rubber stamping the United States on just a fresh, you know, fresh page of history? Right. That's a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B, but that line is something that Harold is thinking. 
mm. about the tabula so rasa that he's like impressed at how these people have come together and even without any guidance even without any direct unification just from being who they are and the things that attracted them to mother abigail they're just all kind of getting along and things are pretty much like okay yeah at least on the surface level right and and harold's already starting to transform himself so it's, i almost mm -hmm. think of harold is in this position of what a lot of kids do going between high school and college where they're in a new place where nobody knows them so they can get rid of their childish nickname yep uh, in harold's case he stopped eating the chocolate and he's doing more exercises so he's lost his acne and he's gotten in better shape and he's become this politician where he's going around and glad handling everybody and kissing babies and 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 always having a nice thing to say and an opinion to share but underneath that, Harold hasn't really changed. Franny notices it because she knew him beforehand. And even somebody who meets him for the first time and has a different picture of how he had him set up, Larry says he can still see sometimes in his eyes that he's smiling on the front, but not behind the facade. Yeah, there's a line about Harold that he's a fresh Harold Lauder clone from the old one by the sharp intervening knife of the superflu epidemic. And I kind of think like Harold has changed in your analogy of, you know, the, the kids starting college and starting fresh, Harold sees this moment for himself. He knows that he can choose to be a different version of himself. He can choose one path in the fork in the road or the other. He's kind of procrastinating at the fork mm. and he's been that way all this time. And it seems that every time he starts to lean towards the version of himself that's generally helpful and good and wants himself and others around him to succeed in life, he something happens to kind of slap him back towards the other, other fork in the road. Yeah. But I don't know that, that Harold was cloned. I don't know if clone's the right, right term here. But he was definitely affected by the sharp intervening knife that everybody was affected by. Yeah. I like the analogy that Harold uses about himself, the one that King sets up, that he feels like a magnet mm. that's on the table and he can feel himself being pulled in a direction, but he hasn't hit that point of no return where the magnet flies across the table to the to the pole that's pulling it. He's still just sort of right. scoot, scoot, scooting along and you can barely see it. The motion's imperceptible, but at some point there'll be a point of no return and he hasn't quite hit that yet. And we're almost there at the end of this section that we read. He's got the gun ready when he's got Stu in front of him and he's willing to take out Stu and Glenn and Ralph and everybody else. And I think it's Stu who invites him over for dinner. Yeah. And that's enough to like sort of stop the magnet in its place. Like, wait, he offered me a kindness and I'm not quite ready to go yet. The characters in the book call him a like a skillful politician, you used that word a moment ago. But I don't think he's being a politician. I think he's a sociopath. <laughs> Quite simply, he's pretending to have the kind and happy emotions and human interactions that, that everybody witnesses, but it's all an act. This is not him playing politics. This is not him, you know, leveraging popular opinion against popular opinion. This is him doing things that are not how he feels because the things that he feels are just 
either pure evil or self-destructive or or just completely disconnected from the actual scene that he's in my amateur diagnosis of harold is that he's basically just if he wasn't already the experiences he had with the superflu and his family dying his friends dying whatever life changing completely it's tipped him over into this new version of himself that he's just faking everything like he he stands in front of the mirror and practices smiling yeah that is not a politician i don't think that's just yeah that's creepiness yeah there's a scene in my friend dahmer which is a movie based on a graphic novel about jeffrey dahmer where he's doing the similar thing where he's like looking at himself and practicing the face he's gonna have for other people Mm -hmm. the interesting thing about harold and that that sociopath there's two people who notice it yeah one of them is the boy Joe, who is now Leo. We know we know his real name now. And we've already been t- told that he might have a little bit of the shine. They don't use that word exactly, but like they've, they've hinted at that he might have some sort of psychic ability. And from the moment he meets Harold, he's like, nope, I don't want any part of this guy. Like, I'm, I can't go in his house. I can't be near him. Like, I know something's not right with him. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But then the second person that notices is Nick Andros. When Nick is saying he wants veto power over who can be on the committee with them, he immediately strikes Harold's name from the list. And we talked earlier about how Nick, and part of this might be because of his disability being deaf, that he has a different way of looking at the world and seeing things, and he's able to potentially see things that other people aren't. Yeah, pick up on those cues, right? And so he notices right away, like, nope, I don't want Harold involved with this in any way, no matter how many people vouch for him. Larry like built up this very complete image of who Harold was based on his all of the clues he was picking up across the country. Yep. And was so excited to meet him. He he had become this mythical person in Larry's mind. And Larry said, you know, called out to him and Harold turned around in that moment holding this the spackle spade or whatever it was. Uh, he turned around holding that tool and Larry saw everything in that flash and realized in that moment, like this guy's going to kill me. What, who, what's wrong with him? And something is definitely off about him. And then just as quickly, Harold remembered, Oh, somebody can see my face. I have to put on my, my fake friendly face and turned on all the charms. And it was enough to put Larry at enough ease that he was willing to go into the house. Yep. But he still was on edge the whole time. And I don't think he ever really fully accepted Harold as like a good person to be around. Yeah, but we're not to the point yet where I think he's totally discounted him yet. I think my point is that both Larry, because he already had an impression of what he thought Harold was going to be like, is willing to be at least a little bit, give him the benefit of the doubt. Mm -hmm. Franny is also willing to give him a little bit of the benefit of the doubt once she hears what Larry says about him, right? Like. Oh, yeah. Larry likes him. Maybe I should look at him in a different perspective. And both of them shouldn't do that. They should trust their gut in this case. But they're not able to as much as Leo and Nick are. Yeah. So we have a lot of talk from Mother Abigail. She has a lot of interior moments in this section. The first one is when we see her in her house and she finally has a house with plumbing and electricity. Not that it's useful yet, but like it's a totally different lifestyle from the ramshackle shack she lived in. She thinks of it as a downgrade because she's now she needs to boil her water rather than 
pull it from the pump in the outside of the house and yeah. the electricity doesn't work. So, But she's gotten tired, right? Yeah. Her role now is because she has been dreamt by so many people, they're the first things they want to see when they get to Boulders. I, we want to see Mother Abigail and it's almost like a pilgrimage for them to come and like mm -hmm. tell their story. And she's heard the story hundreds of times by this point. Hey, yeah, you people died. You had a dream of me and now you're coming to see me. But she can't act that way, right? Because she's sort of like the Pope in that she can't can't do anything about it. So we get a lot of interior and a lot of that sort of her doubts about what's going on and her things about Randall Flagg. And then later on, we get this vision that she has. But early on, she's talking about what she thinks of Randall Flagg, who everyone's starting to call the adversary. And she realizes that, that why, that's why she's here, right? Like she's been put on earth to be sort of the, the stand in against him in some way. And I thought it was interesting. She calls out that she thinks that Randall Flagg is anti-creation. And she mentions that he's unable to create things. He's only able to destroy mm. And not only that is he he does it in the same patterns over and over again. She sees him as an adversary that that comes back and has the same tricks and does the same things. And this is something we've heard before, right? Like this is what Randall Flagg was portrayed like in Eyes of the Dragon. As yeah. one of the ways that Peter was going to figure him out was that he's fallen into the same traps and every few hundred years he does the same things. And there's nothing original there, which uh, again, because he can't create anything new, he's only anti-creation. And I thought that that was an interesting, more than a Dark Tower thinning, I wanted to call it out because it seems to be a theme that King is setting up here that this society where Mother Abigail is, is all about creation. And we just talked about how they are creating a new society here when Randall Flags is the opposite. And it's not necessarily good versus evil as much as it is that creation versus anti-creation. I think what you touched on earlier is what Nick says, is that it's easy to blow stuff up. The hard job is bringing things together. Mm. and both Flag and Abigail have brought people together. Both Flag and Abigail are forming societies of a kind. They're different from each other. But the one that Abigail has formed around herself is a society of creation. They are cooperating with each other. They want to help each other. They want to be bigger. They want things to be more than what they all bring individually. And they want to, they want to build something that will continue beyond them, that will last, that will endure. Whereas Flag is only doing this for his selfish reasons. He wants, or I should say, he requires more bodies to meet his goals mm. than just himself. If he could just walk into Boulder and start killing people at a whim, why does he even have to aggregate uh, you know, all of his followers? Right. So... For whatever reason, Flag has those limitations, but that's why he's drawing these people to himself. And I don't get the sense that he's building a society. I get the sense that he's amassing an army. Yeah. And that's different. Because as soon as he does, if he ever gets to a point where he doesn't need that army anymore, he just will abandon it. But right. that's Flag's MO. He, he's the one who, like we've talked about when we first started, uh, first met him in the story, He's the one who walks into a room, stirs up the hornet's nest and walks back out and lets everybody get you know, killed by bee stings. And then he's like, well, what are you talking about? I wasn't even there. Yeah. So this is just the, the most grand scale that Flag has, has attempted that we're aware of. Right. 
one of the accounts that we follow on our Twitter is the Dark Tower bot, which sends out quotes from the Dark Tower every day. And one of the ones they had this week was also about how the Crimson King was the forces of anti-creation as well. Mm. So this is a theme that runs through a lot of these related books that King is writing. And it must be something he thinks about, especially as, and we talked about this a lot, as, as the metafiction of the Dark Tower. How much for King, the act of creation was something that could save the world, right? So Patrick Danville's creating stuff in the Dark Tower to help save the Dark Tower. And it's all about this act of creation. King himself, in writing the stories, is an act of creation. So this is a theme that runs throughout King's stuff. And we just have Abigail spouting it out here. King adds sort of a, a, another layer on top of this. And in the three chapters we read for, for this section, we went from Glenn being very rational and talking about like, here's how we're going to set up a democratic society. And I know how to do it because I'm a sociologist, even though I'm going to put my thumb on the scale a little bit. But he's very much being rational. Like, here's what we're going to do. By the time we get to the end of this section, Glenn has turned around and he said, he starts talking about how we're now in a world, world of irrationality. He had been a big proponent of rationality before, but he says, you know, I think our world has changed somewhat. And it's not really clear what he's talking about specifically. I think both you and I had a little bit of a problem following the entire train of thought here. But a lot of it seemed to be that it was Glenn saying, there are things that we can't explain rationally anymore. It's not just science. It's not facts. But the fact that we're all having dreams about people, whether it be Mother Abigail, who's a 108-year-old woman who seems to think she's the voice of God on earth, and the adversary who seems to be some sort of devil or demon or, or personification of evil. There's nothing to explain it. So we have to maybe take for granted that there is irrationality in the world. And maybe that's how things are going to be going forward. And we shouldn't just try to explain it with science or fact, but just sort of let it flow over us and be like, all right, this is the way the world is now. And we're just going to have to deal with it because Glenn had very under, like he, very much explained to Stu, this is how the world is going to be now that 99% of us have died. And that's not what has happened. Yeah. And so that's sort of the, the take I took from this. Yeah. I, I, I think another way to sum up what you just said is that there's more magic in the world now. Mm. Much like what used to be a really good show, Game of Thrones. <laughs> wow. The backhanded compliment. The first season of that show, and then basically the first book of the series, there's no magic. It's like a medieval-esque story with swords and suits of armor and battles and castles. And then dragons appear, and now there's magic in the world. Because you can't, you can't just continue to be totally rational like Glenn wants to be. And also have dragons. Right. Just like here, the world was a, a completely rational place. Everything could be explained away with science or, or investigation or something along those lines. But then the flu happened. And now there's more magic in the world. Now there's this, this person, Flag, who can levitate and kind of come and go as he pleases and just show up and just walk the earth, but somehow jump from place to place and mother abigail can have these two-way dreams with all of these people and 
instead of doing the things that Glenn expected, like you said, only two groups of people formed in the entire United States. Canada, Mexico, not included, (laughs) apparently. If we can't explain everything rationally, then we have to accept irrationality as fact. And King explains that away with, with magic. Yeah. And I like it. That's where I think in the the passage where we first are introduced to Flag in this book, and he has that moment of like where he just levitates off the road and then lowers himself back down. He says, Not quite yet, not quite yet. Yeah. That's the moment when this story becomes uh it goes from being a pre-apocalyptic to post-apocalyptic to fantasy in that one moment. And then from there on out, this is a fantasy story. Right. And you and I love that. And we think it's great how King takes our hand and leads us through those modes of what this book really is. This is Glenn, probably the most rational person or most rational character in the book coming to grips with his new reality. And, and that reality is magic. So the only one that might be more rational than Glenn is Nick. And Nick has already presented himself as atheist, as at worst agnostic as as best uh, when it comes to what's going on. And he's taking all these notes on what does it take to create a society and what are we going to do? And he's planning this all out. And how do we deal with the Mother Abigail situation? Because she thinks she's the voice of God. And if we set up a government, how are we going to include her ideas? Because people are going to naturally flow towards that. So there is that one still person who hasn't totally bought in, I don't think, into the irrationality, and that's Nick Andros. As as we're going through this section, at least, it's it, it still seems like, okay, there needs to be a place for Mother Abigail. But on the other hand, we need to set up this committee that's going to be somewhat rational in dealing with how we're going to deal with it. Although we all agree that there is a bad guy that we're going to have to handle in some shape or form but i don't think he's taken the step to say yeah i totally believe that this is a good versus evil demon versus angel good versus whatever situation yet and i still want to play on the old terms of doing things Mm -hmm. and what's interesting about that is and you know i think we've said it a number of times i know i have about this good versus evil is that it's not quite good versus evil or maybe the sense of good is a little slippery much like the idea of america is sort of slippery because they do have this idea of like we're going to set up a committee and we're going to have a vote and we're going to open it up to the entire people of boulder Mm -hmm. but before we do let's put an ad hoc committee together with the seven people we think would be the good committee and then we'll present that as hey let's have a vote on these people and see if they should be or if there should be somebody else and then that committee is also meeting and saying, you know what, there's certain things that we're not going to tell the whole community. We're going to be as open as we can to a point and then maybe hide a few things because the people don't really know, need to know that. Right. And then, oh, by the way, we probably need to spy on the guys. So let's figure out some people we can send to spy and not tell them everything they need to know. And it, it gets a little bit loosey-goosey when it comes to morals here. Yeah, but that's the age-old conflict of good versus evil in any story, right? The the evil side of that equation has the freedom to do absolutely anything they wish because they're evil, right? right? Nothing is off the table. But the good side of the equation is always hemmed in by what is correct, what is legal, what is right, what is fair. So 
I think that this is still the good side of the equation, tempered a bit by practicality and pragmatism. Yeah. I think Glenn recognizes with very little humility that he needs to be involved in this. Like somebody with his professional expertise needs to be involved. How else can I go about ensuring that somebody says, Glenn has to be on this committee? Well, going to have to put my thumb on the scale, as you said earlier. Right. Yeah, he puts it a great way. If you want to have somebody uh, bypass democracy, get a sociologist involved. Uh-huh. Exactly. That's not a verbatim quote, but it's the spirit of it. Mm-hmm. There, there is a lot of stuff that goes on, you know, in addition to the things you mentioned about, you know, keeping secrets and sending out spies, you've got somebody like Franny breaking into Harold's house yeah. and snooping around. That's not something that a quote unquote good character should ever do because it's wrong. But we understand why she's doing it. And she almost succeeds in her mission to verify her suspicions with hard evidence. It would have been kind of crazy if she did clumsily break into Harold's house and then find his secret journal uh, in its hiding place. Right. But King spares us that, uh, <laughs> that, that leap. Yeah. But you're right. There is a little bit of loosening of morals. I, I don't know if there's a way around that. No, I think that's the bad part of every government, right? Especially what happens where it really, I don't think caught me off guard. But when they were talking about sending Tom Cullen to be one of the spies, yeah, and Nick, who's closest to Tom, comes up with these really good reasons why Tom might be the perfect spy person to send. And I think it is Franny and, and Sarah, it's, of course, the two women who vote against it, right? They're like, no, we don't want to send Tom. We don't think that that's right. That's, that's a bridge too far for us, mm -hmm. is to send this mentally disabled man out to what could potentially be his death. And after the vote happens, they both sort of say, we want this to be a unanimous vote. We don't want it to look like we were infighting, even though the vote's going to be secret. Let's change our votes or at least we're unanimous. And you already get that sense of, well, we're going to justify this in some way. Mm -hmm. Like, even though we don't think it's right, let's make sure we're going to justify it in a way so that we're all together on the same page. And that's, I think, where you could start to get into trouble. Yeah. Sean, you want to talk about some Dark Tower thinnies? Ooh, I do indeed. So the first one I noticed is that one of the characters we haven't seen much of is somebody called the Judge. He's in Larry's group, I think, originally, and, and he comes into town. And his name is Richard Ferris. And his initials are RF. And in all Stephen King books, when a character has the RF initials, that usually means something. Indeed. It's a shame that his last name wasn't Fudge. Then he would be Judge Fudge. Judge Fudge. I like it. That's not my idea. It was uh, some Adult Swim character. Ah. Every time somebody would say, hey, Judge, aren't you supposed to like hear this case? And he's, he would say, I'm too busy being delicious. And then... <laughs> Walk off. <laughs> nice. A thinny that I noted was that when Larry's party finally made it to Boulder and he was waiting to meet Mother Abigail, his party had 19 members. He had managed to gain and lose whoever, I don't know how many like came and went over the course of, of his journey across the country ultimately, but when they reached the town in Boulder, 
that there were 19 people in it. Interesting. Yeah. And we find that out because uh, Mother Abigail says, and 19 out by the gate, probably getting heat stroke while you and me chin. <laughs> so somehow she knew with her, either someone told her or she, her, with her powers of prescience, she knew that there were 19 people. So Nick, as we have mentioned, is mute. So he does a lot of writing on the fly so that he can communicate with people. But there's other times when he uses hand gestures to get his point across. And one of the ones that he comes to a lot that his fellow characters have picked up on is that Nick draws a question mark in the air. And when he does that, he wants more information, sort of like, why? Tell me more. And whenever he did that gesture, drawing a question mark in the air, it reminded me of when Roland did his let's go keep telling the story uh, gesture, which is a little bit different. You know, I, I get it as him circling his fingers, but I like that that callback of like a character sort of indicating, come on, I don't got all day. G- give me some more information. Speaking of Roland and his uh, gestures, we know that from the gunslinger that Roland is the type of person who would straighten a painting that's yes. crooked on the wall. And there's a moment when Larry feels the urge to fix a crooked tile in uh, Harold's house. Mm. And he says, leaving it like that would be like leaving one piece out of a jigsaw puzzle or a picture hanging crooked on the wall. Hmm. So Larry's a little bit like Roland, eh? Uh Uh-huh. So my final thinny is not a Dark Tower thinny, but a Nightflyer thinny, I guess. And that is that we are introduced again to Kojak, the Glenn's dog who made his way all the way to Boulder uh, at the end of the story. We get a little bit about it. And I think it's Glenn or, or Stu says his story about making it halfway across the country to his owner is like one you'd read about in the Star Weekly. And I thought it would be better if it was inside view and we could have had uh, Miguel Ferrer write that story up. I agree. That would have been a much tighter connection. Yes. King King uh, dropped the ball on that one. All right. It's time for our new favorite section, Yucking It Up. Blah. So this section is fairly clean. There's mostly the the only gross thing is the politics, you know, how the sausage is being made of the politics. But there are a couple <laughs> things that I wanted to point out. And one is, as we mentioned before, Leo is not sure about Harold. And he mentions to Larry, I think there might be worms inside him making him smile. Big white worms eating up his brains like maggots. And I could just imagine this sort of feral young boy saying this in it. In addition to be soaring a, a gross image, it, it's a little creepy as well. But given his propensity for the shine, it might be remarkably accurate. <laughs> yeah. Like if you have like, you know, kind of this ESP power. And somebody is like Harold, that's what their psyche looks like, as opposed to someone who, like, you know, Franny, you know, probably just, you know, looks like uh, rainbows and butterflies and stuff, (laughs) right? (laughs) The other one was um, Larry talking about how, even though there's fewer dead people in Boulder, there's still sort of a smell around town, right? Yeah. And he thinks about the time that he was at the zoo and how. At first, he couldn't go into the monkey house, but then his his mother told him, hey, don't think about it and you'll get used to it. And he did, but then he realized, oh, maybe I can smell it. And when he does, he realizes the stink was there. The stink was even bigger and badder than it had been when they first came in. And his hot dogs and cherry pie 
started to come up on him again in one big sickening whipped bubble. And he has to oh. run outside and get some fresh air to keep himself from yakking it up. Not only is that a good yucking it up, Jay, but it draws to mind uh, the body or stand by me when they have the pie eating contest and they all start throwing up pie. I think that one might have been blueberry pie and not cherry pie, but I think so. But close enough. King must have had a traumatic pie eating incident when he was a kid. The extra like little dash of spice that makes this just all the more yuck is that word whipped. Yeah. If his sick came up in a bubble, okay, that's bad. That's it's gross. A bad belch, right? Yeah. But whipped bubble, that's like foam and oh. yeah, gross. Very much a yucking it up moment. Well, now's the time when we would like to thank our patrons for supporting the show. They get access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. And they do that by visiting patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Yeah, we have three new patrons uh, this month. Jonathan M., who joined at the apprentice level. Travis M., who joined at the apprentice level. And Steve R., who also joined at the apprentice level. Thank you all for becoming our patrons. And as Sean just mentioned, anybody else, if you want to listen to our exclusive Patreon content, check out patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. All right, it's time for some fun stuff. All right, fun stuff. So this must be a change from the first version of the book to the second version of the book. But at one point there, I think it's Glenn and Stu are discussing like, who Mother Abigail's talking to and who's sort of in charge up there. Is it God? Is it Thor? Is it Allah? Is it Pee Wee Herman? <laughs> There's a couple things that, that King notes, and it really sort of nails this into the late 80s period. I don't know if you noticed, Jay, but there's also like at least three references to Roger Rabbit mm. in, in in this book. And I'm like, really? Roger Rabbit was okay, but three references to it? That's a little bit much, King. He must have been obsessed with that movie. I think it was more like in uh, you know 1988 to 1990 as he was rewriting this. He didn't have access to Google the way we do today. Uh, He's like, oh, what, what's something that I... That, you know, what just pops to mind right now? Uh, Roger Rabbit, I guess? Okay, sure. Yeah. Pee Wee Herman? Pee Wee Herman? Okay. Here's what's on the top of our minds in pop culture in 1988. <laughs> One of the things I wanted to call out was Kings has the characters talking about they're planning this this get together where they're going to serve refreshments, uh, including cookies and something called Zarex. And I didn't know what the heck Zarex was, so I had to look it up. And apparently it's a uh, like a juice concentrate that's really popular and I think mostly localized to the New England area of the United States. So it's kind of like Kool-Aid, but instead of a powder, it's a liquid concentrate that you would dilute and then serve like yeah. you would Kool-Aid. And everybody who's talking about this thinks seems to think that Zarex tastes terrible because the line in the book was, cookies and Zarex, Ralph made a face. <laughs> so this reminded me of The Simpsons when the Simpson family goes to Manhattan. <laughs> and... Homer goes to a, a, a food cart and he to, to order some food and he's 
the the vendor says, "What do you want to drink? We have Mountain Dew and crab juice." <laughs> and Homer's like, "Ugh, I'll have the crab juice." Good call out to an episode that they don't show very much anymore because of the two Twin Towers reference. Yes. It's a shame. So, so I mentioned Pee Wee Herman as being sort of the top of mind in pop culture. And you could see where King had updated the story for his new and expanded version in 1990. But then there's other times you're like, wait a minute, why didn't King change this? And one of those is, I think it's Ralph mentioning to Mother Abigail that uh, Larry Underwood's group has come. And he says, one of those is Larry, one of those long hairs. I'm like, I don't think anybody was calling people long hairs in 1990. It just seemed really out of place. There was a line I really liked. Larry was thinking back to some advice that his mother gave him when he was a kid. She said, if you can't afford to go to a movie, go to the zoo. If you can't afford the zoo, go see a politician. <laughs> As somebody who's taken his kids to the zoo many times, it is not cheap going to the zoo. It's probably cheaper to go to a movie, but... It may not have been the case in 1970s... True. ...era. It, w it is cheap to go see a politician. And perhaps more entertaining than the monkey house. <laughs> we mentioned Kojak earlier. When he arrives, Glenn is all excited to tell Stu, and he, he goes up to Stu and starts saying, Hey, hey, Kojak's back! And Stu says, You mean the dog? That Kojak? How many other Kojaks do you know? Do you mean Telly Savalas? And then I had this picture of like, maybe Telly Savalas survived the flu and he just showed up and walking into Boulder. That would be so awesome. You know, pops the lollipop out of his mouth and who loves you, baby? And who loves you, baby, Mother Abigail? You know, I had a dream about you. Yeah. And in typical Stephen King fashion, King undercuts himself by Kojak survived this, this wolf attack on him. But he mentions like, also, Kojak isn't going to die for 16 years, taking all the worry that this is a character that's going to die by saying, don't worry, he's going to live. I think it's important to notice that there's a dog. It reminds me that there's that website called Does the Dog Die, which warns people watching a movie whether or not the dog's going to die in the movie or not. So you, those who are worried about it know whether to be upset or not. Unlike the cow that dies in the adaptation of 1922. Yes. <laughs> Nobody warned us. Which we talked about in a recent bonus episode on our Patreon feed. That is true. So another fun stuff item I had. There's a character whose name is Charlie Impening, and he had become the Boulder Free Zone's resident doom crier, mm. always walking around saying, it's not going to work. We're all going to fail. We're all going to die in the winter, yada, yada. And I thought, well, if you add one letter to Impening's last name, he becomes Charlie Impending. Uh-huh. See what I did there? I do. Actually, you see what King did there? He's like, hmm, Impending Doom. What am I going to name this guy about Impending Doom? <laughs> oh, I'll just erase a letter. There, I got it. Charlie Impening. Done. So along the same lines as Zarex, which I also had to look up, I had to look up the Kraft Cheese Kisses, which King mentions. Um, and it turns out that I think he's remembering incorrectly. The Kraft Cheese Kisses are actually Borden Cheese with a Z Kisses, but they're exactly what you think of. You know how we have Hershey Kisses, which is a little bit of chocolate wrapped up. These were little pieces of cheese that were wrapped up and you could pop them like little snacks for yourself. No idea those existed, or at least if I did remember, they're totally out of my memory, but 
fun thing to look up if you want to try to remember foodstuffs from the 70s and 80s. I'd never heard of those either, and I did not look them up. Are they shaped in like kind of cubes uh, shapes, or are they like Hershey Kisses where they're like a dollop shape? No, they look more like cube shapes. Oh, so it's just like like caramels, except yeah, <laughs> except cheesy. It made me wonder if there was a whole time in the 70s when everything were kisses, like cheese kisses and chocolate kisses and caramel kisses and sausage kisses, like the possibilities are endless. Sausage kisses? I mean, they'd go well with cheese kisses, wouldn't they? Yeah, I guess on your on your kiss charcuterie, right? <laughs> my my last fun stuff, Jay, and this might wrap us up, is that all the characters are thinking at one point, and each of them has like a little tick. And one of them is that Stu starts jingling coins in his pocket. <laughs> and I'm trying to figure out why on earth would Stu have any coins in his pocket? He went from Texas to a hospital in Vermont. Yep. Marched out to the East Coast, down to Nebraska from the East Coast, and then to Boulder, Colorado, in a world that no longer has any need for money. Why on earth would he have coins in his pocket? Yeah. I don't have coins in my pocket, and I need money. Yes. (laughs) I hate having things in my pocket and try to limit the amount of things I have in my pocket, and I would... Get rid of my driver's license, my credit cards, my coins, the instant that I could if I no longer needed it whatsoever. The only thing I'd have in my pocket is chapstick, especially in a deserted world. That would be the my main form of barter, I think, is chapstick because I would always <laughs> want it. And I knew there'd be a limited <laughs> supply in this new crazy world we lived in. Uh, but coins, I mean, I guess it's useful if you want to show that somebody's thinking hard. Maybe that's how you do it is like, yeah, he jangled those coins in his pocket. Really bizarre to me. Yeah, that sounds like one of those like acting crutches that uh, <laughs> always irritate me. It's like the the director said, "You need to act stressed out, so pour a drink and chug it." Yeah, because somehow if you're stressed out, like drinking, you know, a scotch very quickly is going to, I don't know, make you feel better instantly. Uh, in my experience, that's not how booze works, but you know, but it's like that's it. That's like you got to do something visual. So you know, shakily pour the booze into the glass and then jam it in your face and or david caruso here's what i want you to do <laughs> say part of a line take off your sunglasses and then finish it with a stinger yeah! on that note that's all for this episode of two guys to the dark tower came thanks jay thank you links to all of our social media is available in the show notes if you like the show please rate us on apple podcasts to support the show visit patreon.com slash two guys dark tower Next episode, join us as we cover The Stand, Book 2, Chapters 53 through 56. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. I had a glass of alcohol for the first time in like a month yesterday. Isopropyl? <laughs> yes, I just took straight isopropyl. <laughs> what was the, um, I can't remember the name of the group. What was it? Signs?
Signs, signs everywhere, signs. Tesla? Yeah, it's like long hair freaky people need not apply. So I took off my hat. Imagine that, me working for you. Yeah, the thing is, though, is isn't that song a remake of a song from the 60s or 70s? Probably, but I think it came out in like 91. Yeah, but it further proves my point that this is something that people are saying in the 60s and 70s, not in the late 80s. <laughs> One of those long hairs. But maybe Ralph's an older guy and crew cut guy and he still refers to him. It just seemed out of place to me. Yeah. You can edit out my reference to Tesla. I'm kind <laughs> of ashamed that I know the words to any part of that song. Hey, I knew the band's name, so. <laughs> we're, we're Which both one at, of us is worse? We're both at fault here. <laughs> <laughs>